Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Bullet Points. It's been a while, you know. It's been a while because we've been busy. Uh, Yusuf and I have been on our own parallel quest for revenge across America. Um, my uh, surrogate father was uh, beaten to death with a uh, golf club in front of me, so I had to set out. And then the thing about it was, it was Yusuf who did it, and <laughs> and my surrogate dad killed his dad. So it was this big mix-up, but we met somewhere in the middle. It took us a while to get there, and then we said, let's do a podcast about it. Right, Yusuf? Is that how it went? Yeah, I think we wound up having, you know, a pretty peaceful resolution of the whole thing. Um, yeah. Because we're mature adults. Yeah. We don't settle I mean, our problem with violence. And I did appreciate it when you took me down from the uh, crucifix that I was on. That was it was kind of awkward, but we don't really we don't talk about that. No, we don't. Um, so this is our podcast on The Last of Us Part Two, the follow-up to The Last of Us Part One. Uh, I'm Reed McCarter, and I'm joined, as per usual, by Yusuf Cole. Yusuf, how are you? I'm excited to talk about this game. Yeah, finally. Yeah. Here we are. I'm excited to talk about people. it with words and not with, with writing. It's the beauty well, of the writing's, podcast. Writing's words. Uh, mm-hmm. Vocal writing is, is what I refer to podcast as. So, um, We have a full house here today. We have every contributor to this month, which was a big month already, too. A lot of people. So I'll just start by introducing Natalie Flores. Hi. Freelance writer, yeah. featured contributor at Fanbyte, Natalie. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad everyone else seems to be doing good so far. And I'm excited to talk about The Last of Us, too. I think I might be the most positive person on it today here, but I'm eager to talk negatively about it more. So. Well, no, I mean... You talk positive about it. I mean, we, we, we need that. <laughs> Yeah. Let's go all in on the negatives, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we'll, we'll try to get to lots of different aspects of this thing. We also have Kian Marr, freelance writer. You've seen his bylines at, I think, every video game publication that exists. <laughs> yeah. Kian, how are you? Not too bad. How are you? I'm great. I'm, I'm excited to... Yes, to discuss this thing at last. And then we have uh, Cameron Councilman, also freelance writer, who you've seen at many places. Uh, Cameron, one of the one of the oldest guards in games criticism. Right? Is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I often talk about uh, the, the video game criticism world in, in terms of uh, generations. That's, uh, that's appropriate because we're talking about generations here in The Last of Us, right? This is uh, essentially what this game is about. It's about uh, free- freelance writers passing on the lessons that they've learned, the bitterness, and trying to move beyond it. Um, yeah, so we're talking about The Last of Us Part Two. I guess the... I don't know if there's much need for a basic introduction um, to this game. It's the follow-up to... 2013 Naughty Dog game that was um, sort of a road style thing. I don't know. If you're listening to this, I'm sure you know what the first one is. You have Joel, you have Ellie, they go on a trip. It doesn't go 
incredibly well for anyone. Uh, this game picks back up um, in some ways immediately after the end of the first one. Um, and in, in other ways, the, the main thrust of the story is set years later. Um, kicks off with Joel being brutally murdered, and then you assume control of Ellie, who goes on a long journey uh, to get revenge for his killing. It gets complicated. We get introduced to a second main character, Abby, who killed Joel, and then see the story from her perspective. The stories match up, and uh, Ellie and Abby fight, and the game ends. That's that's my overview of it. Um, because it's there's a lot of different stuff to talk about in this game. I think probably the easiest thing to do is just start off and do the usual bullet points podcast format of just saying what we thought of it. Um, so yeah, I'll start with start with Natalie. Did you like The Last of Us Part Two? Yes, I'm. I'm still sorting out my feelings on it, even a month later. Um, just because, like we mentioned at the beginning before starting the recording like it's such a dense game and there is so much to talk about um but i really love it in spite of the very real flaws that i think bullet points and everyone who's contributed to it this month has captured so well um but i think it's worth discussing in a holistic manner and acknowledging a lot of its missteps predominantly having to do with race um, and there's a lot of issues but I I do love it um, it probably is my game of the year um, it's really it's become like special to me but I'm still grappling with its flaws as well it's like this weird thing where um, media is complicated and the ways that it makes you feel is complicated and I think as a queer woman of color, a lot of media involves like having to do compromises with storytelling, like having to be like, okay, the way that this game treats women is awful, but I do like this about it. And so this might be the hardest exercise that I've had in doing that thus far, just because I feel like the highs are really highs and the the normal lows can be pretty low. So um, yeah, but I... I really love it. It's I've written very positively about it, and I've also written more negatively about it for bullet points. Um, so, yeah, I just I have a lot of feelings. No, that's good. I think that's also it's I think interesting to talk about something that, and I think we'll get into this more about um, uh, when you really like something, sort of in spite of a lot of its parts. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. this game for me, like overall, doesn't work uh, mm-hmm. well enough for me to like it. But mm-hmm. also, I when I was playing it, I flip flopped a bunch of times on what I thought about it, and I could see someone being like, "Well, you know, because it's it's a big thing. It's like thirty hours long or something, and obviously, there's a lot going on over that that length of time that you know your opinion can change like scene by scene." Mm-hmm. Um, Kian, what did you think? Um, ultimately, I liked it, but it took me quite a while to decide how I felt. Uh, for the first, I'd say, five to ten hours, I wasn't even convinced that there should have been a sequel. Um, 
I was kind of firmly in that camp of being sort of yeah as I said I, I just didn't really believe that it needed one but then you know by the time I think it was um when you get to the boat sequence uh the first boat sequence like shortly before you're halfway through that was in a click for me and I genuinely it probably is my game of the year as well at this point but like you said I, I flip-flopped on it constantly throughout the entire experience it wasn't until the last five or ten hours that I was like okay this is actually a remarkable game but uh in, in hindsight now I can see what all the fuss was about I nearly stopped playing about 10 hours in because I was bored but in the end I loved it <laughs> yeah we should get into also you just really that. you just really love boats huh <laughs> <laughs> yeah you didn't boat, tell me there like... were boats in this game <laughs> uh, uh, Cameron go to you because you're, you're a guest as well what did you uh, think? Well, you know, I luckily I was able to skip right to the boats, and so I was able to start. <laughs> the, boat, the boat hack, the speedrunning uh, boat hack, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, you know, got on the got on the net, downloaded those hacks. Uh, no, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm in a weird spot with both this game and uh, the, the the previous game uh, because I wrote a chapter of my dissertation on The Last of Us One. Um, and I've written about it several times uh, over the course of, of uh, since the original release and then the re-release, um, you know, whether that's blog posts back when those existed or, um, you know, remember a, a, a hallowed time um, mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or for publication in various places. Right. I've written about uh, a couple different characters specifically uh, from The Last of Us One. So. I mean, I, I think I'm through, it's a long way of saying, I think I'm kind of through the wall as far as like whether I like the game or don't like the game. I, I don't think I would say anything like it, it's my game of the year in the sense of that I don't know what that would really mean for me um, because I think so much of what makes The Last of Us both games work is that they are part of that kind of Sony prestige for media format thing that they do. Um, where they hook so much of their console reputation and so much of the quote-unquote maturity of storytelling and all of that, they hook them into these games uh, in a very particular kind of way. And so they, they always feel best in class and kind of, uh, uh, you know, like they're special. Um, but I think that that specialness is, it, for me, feels very manufactured. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think it's a, you know, a remarkable game in the context of video games. Uh, and I think it's a remarkable game in the context of other kind of big storytelling stuff. But I, I think that in that way, in being remarkable and, and in being this kind of prestige format, I think that both The Last of Us 1 and The Last of Us 2 are more interesting to me as uh, indexes of kind of society at a, at a given moment. Uh, you know, I'm very kind of Frankfurt school on that, right? I think that you can symptomize and talk about the social in very particular kinds of ways by looking mm -hmm. at the objects that become central to, to culture. And so I think, uh, you know, when people are saying things like it's my game of the year, I think that that, that statement in and of itself means that we really have to dig in and think about it. And I don't think that that means we have to be negative about it, but I do think that that, that really means we have to have kind of a sustained uh, and long-form engagement with it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a way of dodging your question, of course. But, um, <laughs> but, but I, think that, I think it is important, and I think that it tells us something. And whether I liked it or not, one way or the other, um, that is still true. So... 
Hmm. So, <laughs> too too long in academia, not not enough time in the review minds, <laughs> where you have lots of thoughts about it, and then at the end of the day, you still have to say, "This is what it gets out of 10. <laughs> no, I'm liber I'm liberated beyond the review score at this point. You've uh, transcended. Yeah. You've. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, that sounds. Yeah, that sounds nice. Um. Yeah. Ah, oh, Christ. There was like five different things I wanted to talk to you about in that what you were discussing there but finish off Yusuf oh <laughs> what's yeah, it get I mean, out of 10 <laughs> <laughs> how do I follow that just kidding <laughs> uh, no that's interesting I mean yeah I think that I, I I agree with a lot of what's been said like in this summary where I had ups and downs and I and I liked a lot of lot of aspects of the game and yeah like Natalie when I, I'm still kind of I, I just I I'm coming I'm coming I'm still digesting it just because it is such a enormous undertaking it's kind of it's really difficult to to break down as a story uh, and that is something that's really unique to AAA games where you know it's not a movie where it, it, it is several movies that they put into this thing and that are dramatically different from each other um, while they're still being a through line through the entire thing but yeah I think there are definitely aspects of it that I liked and I would probably recommend people play it uh, who are interested in where games are um, but yeah I, mean, I think uh, for me a lot of my issues with the last both, both Last of Us is is trying to unpack like a wider message from the storytelling like what how, what how they think of the future how they think of humanity um kind of i think it, they're both very you know deeply nihilistic and cynical games um and that is obviously a perspective that is not unwarranted but it it you kind of come away from it feeling a bit i mean liking the characters but then feeling like the overall um, world that's that that has been constructed is this really like cynical one, and so there's this weird dissonance uh, that I've definitely felt when I finished a game where it's just like, you know, not knowing how to how to fully absorb it, um, and being a bit like kind of lost with the message, um, and yeah, I think also just mechanically it, it is just like a lot to play in in any. You know, I think if I had been better, I guess if I had been writing about it or just had been like with someone with better willpower, I just wouldn't have played it as quickly as mm -hmm. I did. Like, it's just like a downside to, um, I mean, probably how I approach games, but also how games are expected to be consumed. But it's just a lot to date, like, especially just how how um, abrasive it is. Like, there's just a lot to, like, do to yourself in anything under a week um, because it's just like a really uh, brutal game uh, and that really leans into it even more than the first one did um, which is kind of crazy to think about <laughs> when you remember like the, how shocking the first one was mm -hmm. um, but yeah I guess yeah that's 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 my that's my non-answer well there were I mean I think one thing that might be interesting to to kind of dig into the overall appeal or lack thereof in this game um, across kind of the the different opinions we have are 
and this ties in a little bit, I think, to in ways that I don't want to like, just like say explicitly, but like um, the characters in this game, and the characters in the first game, and uh, like I'm, th- I'm thinking about when Cameron's talking about Sony sort of having these prestige games, which is a term that kind of came into being, I think, over the last year or so. Like, Sony has, I think, with their first-party games that they're helping to fund and publishing or owning the studios outright, um, have these games that are sold a lot, I think, on, uh, like, the HBO thing of... You can watch six seasons of The Sopranos, you're interested in it, uh, not so much because it has a larger arc that you see as you're going through it, but because you like spending time with these characters. Um, the characters are acted well enough, and um, the technical aspects of how these things are made is sort of glossy enough and, and nice enough to look at that it maybe makes you more interested in something and you would be. You know, The Last of Us, the first one, when it was announced, um, even as someone who liked Uncharted, despite myself, um, I thought this is this is terrible. This is um, the road, uh, and then the road, the movie, the Vigo movie, aesthetics like just grafted onto this game. Except now the little boy is a little girl, and there are mushroom zombies. But the thing that kind of ended up working with that game for me was a lot of like what would work in a well-made genre movie in terms of there was nuance going on that I think was mostly due to the performances and so forth. So I'm rambling on here, but I think the main thing I want to talk about is sort of the way the characters worked in this game. And if, you know, I'll I'll toss it to Natalie first. um, And I'd be really curious to hear Kian on that too, as people who like this game what you thought kind of if if it was the sort of the strength of the performances or you know the the characters just doing their plot agnostic stuff just hanging out and just talking if that was you know how how much how much of an impact that had on what you enjoyed about this game yeah um so for me yeah, because they're both intertwined, but also, sorry if you can hear my cat crying <laughs> outside the door. Like <laughs> she's outside the door, and she's like, please let me into the conversation. Um, I want to hear what the cat thinks. Yeah. Game. <laughs> Her name is Yennefer. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that would give a good idea. But, um, yeah, so for me, I, I had a really good time with this game because I actually cared about the characters this time around. Uh, so, ironically, even though The Last of Us Part 2 is one of my favorite games ever, I, like, even if you paid me, even if I was, like, an actual, like, paid shill, quote-unquote, journalist TM that the gamers believe that some of us are, like, paid by corporate and management to, like, say nice things, like, even if I was paid, I don't think I would say nice things about the first Last of Us because I don't... I don't really care for the characters besides Ali, and the plot was something that I didn't think was as original as people really made it out to be. It was like a standard sort of 
zombie apocalypse game to me. Um, so even now, with how much I love this game, I still don't really have any positive feelings on the first game. Um, but this time around, I really loved the characters. Um, I I think they're all really tragic. I think that if they were better people who grew up in a better world, they would consider the act the consequences of their actions and think about better ways to resolve those conflicts specifically Ellie and how she decides to mourn Joel and how she goes on a murderous revenge rampage instead of just hanging back in Jackson and mourning like a normal person would like Dina would um but I think the writing of these characters is so nuanced and so complex that I not at one at no point was I more concerned with whether I approved of what Ellie was doing than I was sort of caught up in understanding her and like acknowledging why she did the things that she did. It wasn't until sort of Santa Barbara where they really nail it home that like this is something that she really shouldn't be doing I was like okay this is like way too far but before then even though I thought obviously like she was going way too far with her revenge story it was more of me trying to empathize and trying to understand the pain and the love and the heartbreak behind all the actions that she was taking because I I think this game was marketed very poorly I think marketing it around hate was a mistake and they could get away with it because this like we've said before this is a Sony prestige game like there was no way that even the worst kind of marketing would have really impacted the sales of this game this game's going to succeed anyway so it could get away with faulty marketing but I think a lot of the ways that it has been marketed has been very reductive of the nuance and the depth and the richness of these characters and their motivations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think of this thing a lot too, and I think of so maybe I'm guiding things too much by asking you and Kian specifically, like about character work. But I think of what did, like what was pulled off best for me in this game were moments like small moments with these characters that um it was like the moment to moment writing I think succeeded for me a lot more than than the actual overarching plot of this thing yeah uh like when you talk about you see Ellie and you see this character sort of doing things that at times are are become almost like I think Yusuf and I were talking about this uh, a while ago uh, where you have these characters in this game where it feels like they have their starting point their midway point where they kind of have some realization and then their end point and they don't change a lot in between like they kind of mm-hmm. are like waiting in place until yeah. they get to the plot point that lets them so like for Ellie I thought a lot of it was you're, you're kind of waiting for she doesn't change a whole lot between Joel's death and then the end of her section mm-hmm. she kind of just keeps doing this yeah this thing but like what you were saying part of me was okay with that until I was done the game I think until I kind of saw what it was all amounting to mm-hmm. um but uh 
just the way that she is when she's having a discussion or something with Dina or yeah. you know the ambient stuff when you're just exploring and they're just kind of talking to each other or you know like the little scenes like um, I think about this in terms of the prestige stuff because that's to a certain extent like what Naughty Dog is or Sony I mean it's talent but it's also what they're kind of buying with their resources are these you know like more experienced actors better fidelity for capturing their like facial expressions and and things like that yeah I Um, think those moments also stand out because in what a lot of us could describe as a fairly nihilistic game they're the moments that are more hopeful and optimistic and humanizing like Ellie and Dina they're more gentle interactions like the way that Dina's body language reflects sort of this very intimate amount of care that she has for Ali even when she doesn't say something but in the way that she sort of tries to redirect her anger and her revenge and she tries to find healthier ways for it little by little like when she um when they're in the communications tower at the radio tower and um, Ali sees Abby's picture and she sees her for the first time since she killed Joel and Dina sort of gently takes away that picture and just reminds her that okay we've we've killed three of them down so far so um, let's just maintain focus she kind of redirects her focus and when I think about this game I don't I'll think about the Ellie and Abby fight at the end and a little bit before the end since they have like two encounters but I most think about moments like that or I think about Abby telling Lev, you're my people. I think those moments in a sea of what is a arguably cynical, like right validly um, cynical and nihilistic game, those moments are just the touches of humanity and optimism that elevate it from something that might resonate with everyone as like too nihilistic or too edgy or too pessimistic about humanity and they provide those small glimmers of hope um that's what makes it work for me because i think i think the the first game didn't do so much of that in my opinion or at least i didn't connect with them because i didn't care about joel so for me the best thing that's that this game did was kill joel off like two hours in like i was just like oh we should we should have more games willing to kill off the white scruffy bad dad I think mm-hmm. I think we would benefit from that. <laughs> One thing I really liked about the first game was how much I didn't like Joel. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and I, like... yeah, he's a great character, but I just like I don't know. Like, like I I care more about his relationship with Ellie, and I think than right. him. And and this game focused on that more to extents that I wrote for bullet points that I also didn't like in a lot of ways. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so part of what this makes me think of a little bit is when you talk about this kind of thing and you look at The Last of Us Part Two as I think one of the things that makes it noteworthy is that it's a very big game. Like big mm-hmm. in a lot of senses. Like Cameron, what you're talking about, like the amount of the amount of space something like this kind of takes up. Like if if kind of no matter what your opinion of this thing is if you are in games it kind of has sucked all the oxygen out of the room for like like we were saying before we started this call like 
it feels like we've been talking about this game for a year at this point and it's been out for what like a month and a month and change um and i wonder about the the way that a game like this how much of what it accomplishes is something that is like based on scale if that makes sense on something that's based on on funding and just like sheer just sort of like resources like i'm thinking of if i didn't like a new avengers movie or something which the odds on that are good that i wouldn't like it um but i'm saying you know it had some great uh great moments between its characters and and so forth but i'm also paying attention to those things in the first place because this thing has also sucked the oxygen out of the room in terms of film and i kind of wonder like karen maybe i'll point this like very nebulous kind of point toward you and like i'm kind of curious if you want to expand more about when you were saying like about this game as a game of the year about this game as something that um kind of like regardless of you know opinion or taste this thing just is and we kind of all have to (laughs) we kind of have to deal with it if we're in this space Mm -hmm. uh yeah i mean you see the money on the screen right i mean you know that's another way of of putting what you just said that that in, in some ways you see um that and, and it's exactly Natalie what you were just saying as well that uh, there there's no way for this game to fail from an advertising perspective because it's guaranteed to do X Y Z uh, as far as you know monetary performance um, and that has to do with the platform buying eyeballs uh, it has to do with the publisher buying eyeballs it has to do with um, actual traditional you know um, we we were talking about uh, before the recording uh, the kind of preview uh existence that uh you know interviews with neil Druckmann and things like that that kind of set the tone for what we were supposed to expect for the game as well and was, uh, alongside just making us uh aware of it uh I, I mean i see that that kind of question um and the reason why i think i'm interested in it right and, and what i said about um that it, it allows us to kind of symptomatically talk about society it's the same reason that i like michael bay films and it's the same reason that i like Zack snyder films um i think that there's something about the um the stylistics of the the biggest possible media object that you can create um and and the fact that that big media object uh generates uh its own reason for us to talk about it that for whatever reason we have created, not for whatever reason, there's a, you know, a long uh, historical analysis we can do to get here, but we have created a mode of living in the world that then creates cultural artifacts that have the widest possible breadth literally in human history, um, mm. just you know, purely numerically. And that means that we have cultural objects that, that proliferate stylistics and, and tones and ways of thinking about the relationship between humans and politics. Uh, Natalie, this is a lot of what you're just saying around um, uh, the, the kind of nihilistic media object and read it's what you're talking about with the kind of prestige TV kind of thing. Um, that there's some way that this has folded in a lot of the values that we talk about or the kind of pressure points that we have in society. And it does it uh, in a way that can 
you know, whether it's through advertising or whether it's simply through the appeal of the object itself, it connects with lots and lots of people. And I think that, you know, there's two approaches. You can say, look, we don't need to look at this. We need to look purely at the avant-garde. We need to look purely at the spaces that uh, proliferate uh, um, uh, resistance, but, you know, aesthetic resistance to this kind of thing, or that create different marketplaces, or that eschew the market altogether and create wholly alternative aesthetic cultures. And like, that is good. And I think that those things are important too. And I try to put, uh, you know, as much time as I can to that kind of thing as well. But when I'm thinking academically or when I'm thinking in like the kind of criticism that bullet points allows for, um, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, reading the symptom. What, what is it about the form? What is it about the content? What is it about the structure of the thing of the most mass media object you can do that tells us something about ourselves as a culture. Uh, And it's even weirder than that because it is about ourselves as a culture, but it's also about, you know, what, 300 people really at one company who Mm -hmm. uh, are part of a big vertically integrated mass media culture, but it's them projecting uh, truly at at a scale that that nothing else uh, works at. Um, which is why I think some of the pieces, so for example, Emmanuel Myberg's piece about the kind of uh, Israel-Palestine politics uh, that are uh, part of the, sh- the structure of the world of the game that he did for Vice Games, I think those are really important because I, you know, they kind of, one way of putting it is they say it, it demonstrates the way that certain kinds of politics are kind of smuggled into an aesthetic object that doesn't seem to have any relationship. Um, but it also demonstrates that there is a something beyond the the kind of basic claim of like all games have politics um it's that all games have particular perspectives on the world that they are then representing to us um and it's a weird thing of being both a mass object but also like you know made by a fairly delimited and small amount of people um and really this game has had what two two people who have spoken for it right i mean you got neil Druckmann, and you, and you have that kind of story editor well, um i can't remember what, about, what about those twitter threads on breathing systems <laughs> uh well yeah and and then the the prestige object of the breathing system or the um uh the shirt animation system mm-hmm. right, did you mean ha- um hallie gross yeah there we okay, go the, the the uh the she worked previously on westworld yes. right yeah yeah and that um, winding riffin show that I still haven't watched. Oh, the Amazon Prime show? Yeah, she was, I think, one of the... Uh, she might be showrunner on it, or... Uh, anyway, sir, it's not important. No, uh, but that's that's it. So that's another roundabout answer. But I, I think that's what the value of it is. I mean, uh, I, I think it's Ben Woodard who talks about... Uh, uh, he, he's a philosopher, and he talks about uh, that... What's fascinating about human consciousness is that it is a moment when nature, uh, you know, capital in nature, this revolting, you know, um, uh, moving, constantly changing flux of of the universe, of matter, uh, that it created consciousness in order to reflect upon itself. Um, And weirdly, I think that the the media object, the mass media object works in the same way. It's the, the kind of like bubbling, you know, pure matter of human experience that somehow produces a thing that reflects the thing that, you know, the way that we exist and the way that we live. Um, but also that we is, is very um, in brackets, right? Uh, it's not a universal experience, but it pretends to be. 
Of course, yeah. I mean, um, not to, yeah. I would never put out like a, a mission statement or something, and unless Yusuf wrote one and posted it without my knowledge on the site. But I mean, a lot of the idea is of bullet points, and then going back to the uh, book on shooters that preceded it was the idea of like I've always felt that something like Call of Duty um, is this cultural object um, that has so much wrapped up in it it's almost like um uh, especially as a canadian watching i mean i was a teenager as the iraq war started mm-hmm. so i think i've always had this fascination of seeing from you know just on the other side of a very thin pane of glass uh what america is up to like what um and, and sort of the responses that you see the culture generate to this larger kind of like unconscious um, or collective subconscious maybe um, and you see things like Call of Duty and you see like the the first game and, and why was that such a big success this World War II game that was sort of Band of Brothers and why was Band of Brothers a success and then Call of Duty I think ever since even though it's uh, derided in a lot of good ways uh, a lot of like worthwhile ways as you know being stupid and um sort of this most crass like form of of mass market entertainment is also this thing where it's like like the the id of i mean two years before they come out you know what was going on in people's brains uh culturally that kind of produced this thing um and i think the last of us part two made me think about that a lot as well like the just the kind of the darkness of this one um just made me think a lot about like the idea of you know i think there are a lot of uh valid responses to the trajectory of the world like in in mainstream politics over the last international politics over the last you know five or six years um where it feels like yeah maybe you do think everything fucking sucks the end of the day like we don't learn from our past we're not getting better we're not um you know that the things are just sort of in a uncontrolled nosedive um and you see something like the last of us part two come out and and sort of do that but then i can't agree with the way it does that um and then i think also though about things like when you have something that large like when you have you know a call of duty game maybe there's some actually like really interesting commentary snuck in in some level in some detail because it's such a massive project and then you know turn this to Kian as well but you know you wrote the piece for bullet points about sort of uh like the the worldview of the game is so pessimistic toward humanity or cynical toward humanity but then like in a sideways uh view of it like you have this game that's like also very um it, it's sort of like positive about the idea of like ecological like rebirth and um i don't know i just think when you have something so huge and then you get these different sort of like reflections coming off the different sides of it um and i I don't know exactly like where to go with that but i guess i'll i guess i'll parlay that into something as general as asking kian uh like kind of what you thought about this game in terms of 
it as sort of like a, a cultural object like what do you think it, it says about um like its view of humanity its view of humanity in relation to the natural world uh <clears throat> there's a lot to unpack there from what's been said in the last while but to start off i wanted to say that i, I largely agree with what uh, natalie said in that the la- i loved the first last of us game but I also think that people who herald it as some champion of contemporary storytelling probably haven't read very many books um, without being dismissive. Um, it's not necessarily original. I think that what that actually accomplished was it um, has this pervasive atmosphere throughout the game. That That's what it did well. Like the, the guy who made Uncharted came out and, you know, which is, you know, obviously Uncharted is the centre of that conversation, that ages-old conversation about the narrative dissonance, and it's just this thing where, you know, it will make you do bad things and then turn around with a slapstick joke, and it all feels quite artificial. Um, I think what the first Last of Us did, and I think the first Last of Us failed in a large way, but what it did was it brought a very gritty, dark story to a time where there probably weren't very many of them, many of them in the medium. But I also think what uh, the last was part two the reason it succeeds for me is to tie it back to what people were saying about the small moments there I think one of the most successful aspects of the first game was when Ellie would turn around and read out some shit joke and it wasn't funny whatsoever but it was endearing and it made you care about the characters I think the last was part two learned from that in a large way like I'm thinking of the scene in the aquarium where Owen and Abby have the plastic bow and like scenes like that where it's just so far away from the nihilism and the pessimism they're what make a game like that succeed but ultimately I also think that they're largely not believable um, when you consider like what you said there about bringing it back to the ecological impact and sort of natural reclamation in The Last of Us Part 2 I think that those scenes are betrayed by the fact that every single time somebody builds like some kind of stronghold or fortress I'm thinking of Jackson it's just an omnidirectional assault on every fortress or stronghold around them it's like within the walls of your own society you know this is your world and you care and you can have these tender moments but as soon as you step foot outside that's where the real um, critique of humanity comes into play and that's why I think either what, what occurs outside or what occurs inside one of those things can't be believable if it's to be a coherent story and, and I think it's that what happens inside in a big way, not in every instance but in a big way is largely artificial it's sort of closing the blinds and pretending that outside world isn't how it is um, if that makes sense it does but expand on that a little bit, do you mean in terms of the the way the game is portraying like um do you mean sort of closing the blinds and ignoring it in in within the the world of the game or do you mean in in terms of how uh the relationship in nature is like portrayed uh by the creators of the game both in a way um i think like if you're to consider this as a cultural artifact that you know hazard study and actual engagement with then it's, it's important to actually interrogate these smaller aspects of it as opposed to just glossing over them for the sake of storytelling and ease of consumption. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's part of what your essay and also, I mean, each one of these essays, but I'm thinking of 
of yours and then i'm also thinking of probably because they deal with sort of how the game portrays spaces and how it portrays like natural versus human-made spaces um what this game has to say about our relationship with nature and how we build human communities too like your piece read to me is maybe a bit more advocating or not advocating for but pointing out that this game was maybe advocating for uh sort of remembering our place as humans in the larger ecosystem but do you think it doesn't it doesn't end up saying that I think it does, but indirectly. I don't think any of the characters voice that. I think the world state does. And I've written about this before. Like I wrote for Heterotopias one time about uh, a similar thing in Near Automata and about how it's that whole Ozymandias deal, you know, that like in a dilapidated world in the future, when these cities and buildings begin to decay, it's just sort of decadence of like the narcissistic state of humanity where we erect these massive man-made buildings and structures with little to no regard for the cost that that has on the natural world and i think that even if it wasn't necessarily intentional it's interesting to view the last of us in that way um when you go to seattle at the start of the game and you see just how decadent everything is and how ultimately futile um you know apparent progress can be if something like the cordyceps affection was to take hold and take root and i think that's worthwhile in of itself to study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also, yeah, it's, there's something about this game that, uh, to me reads as partially sort of like self-flagellating. Like it's, um, you talk about like the Ozymandias idea of, it, it's almost like a, a guilt, this, this, uh, sense that we've, we have too much. So let's make a game about how, horrible it's going to be when it all comes tumbling down um it's also like uh plays into like what i wrote about about um the way cities and rural rural areas are juxtaposed because mm-hmm. you kind of like have that um that dichotomy where the when they start in jackson in that area like it, it's much it's so easy for them to keep the infection at bay like like un, almost like unrealistically easy <laughs> For like a zombie zombie world where they're just like oh you know they just come through we pop pop a couple of them and go back to go back home um and it's like there's like a casualness to it and a certain like ease to it i mean sort of trying to like do that traditional narrative of like the the village at home being the safe place before it's disrupted um but it's still a village that's surviving in a world of of infection and danger and then you know the the city like especially like I was thinking especially that building that like that Abby and Love fall into with that's basically a honeycomb of infection <laughs> like kind of a nest of uh, cordyceps and like they basically have to crawl like kind of dig through it to get out um, is like really like uh, this yeah it's it's like a it's a chastisement or like a, a flagellation of, of cities but also in it, you know, probably inadvertently, but really, sh- you know, portraying this ideology where it's like um, uh, presenting this these urban spaces as like as the as a mistake mistaken terminus for like human development, and and we have to what we should be doing is like is is living more in this kind of homestead frontier lifestyle where we kind of protect our um, 
where we protect these communities in more manageable ways and a city is is the, the, and then when they go into the city it's like this place of chaos this place of like uncontrollable um, catastrophe and even though these are where most people would be so it's kind of equating people to like you know to apocalypse and these more like unlived in spaces as and as like the places where we can like where where humankind can like keep nature at bay which is kind of like what's what what Keen's piece kind of touches on where uh you know obviously and i i, I thought about it as well like it, it's so interesting how how the zombies more so than in the first game um become the are, are becoming represented as just a natural nuisance as like a pest versus actual like existential threat of course when you're in the city that that's not that's not the case but like when you're out in the country and like especially i was thinking of the that scene where um where tommy like takes ellie out shooting to kind of uh bond like you know it has the, the yeah. it has the shape of like a of a uh, you know not paternal but like familial like hunting trip uh of nature like a control easily controllable and masterable nature um that just like juxtaposed to the city is like where it is not where it's you know still very much existential um even though there are people who are trying to survive there well i think there's the piece in kians where it's uh you describe the way that they move around and you're looking at them from across this canyon through a scope and it's um there is something really perverse about it but i don't know if the game intends you to feel that as much as it's saying isn't this sort of a uh i mean it doesn't matter if it intends to or not but it kind of turns like a deer hunting trip this like um older generation younger generation bonding moment that also has like its roots in this kind of uh frontier mentality right like the idea that um it's a bonding thing because you're going you're teaching the younger generation how to how to clear away the the nature you don't want you know how to uh how to chop down a bunch of forest that's growing too close to the house um and i think about the the way the game presents a lot of that stuff and i mean there's a definite definite racial component to this that i think use if you get into it perfectly with i think there's something about the the nihilism of this game that ties into this as well the idea that humans if you put too many of them in one place it goes it goes poorly um that it's like almost arguing in a in a roundabout way you get to the idea that like you know people are and you bring in uh emmanuel myberg's piece advice and you, you get to the idea that you know maybe this is just what's going to happen maybe we should all go back to living in you know in in little houses in little villages where uh you don't hang out with the people in the other villages because that's a recipe for disaster um and i think that ties in yusuf to what you're saying in in the piece where you get that you know the fucking bogost article about the suburbs are better than the cities mm-hmm. um you know i don't know if you want to if you have anything to expand on with that but you know, I'm, th- I'm thinking of that piece too in terms of nature, you know, in terms of uh, the old idea of, of the frontier and, and uh, what's settled and what isn't and what's sort of civilized and what isn't. 
Um, yeah, no, I think, uh, I mean, it, it really is like, it, it was great, like kind of seeing where Kian kind of took that in a more, um, like in the direction of man versus nature where I just like, that was like only like a tangential piece of what I was thinking about, but it really, they're so tied together because it is so much like, I mean, the, the, the dystopia, the post-apocalypse is always this recreation of that, um, where it's like the, you know, being able to role play, um, a, a, a sort of frontierism, a sort of like kind of ca cowboy sort of style of living where, um, you know, they're, the, the only their only rules are 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 you you get to establish your rules you get to kind of um, to you you don't feel hemmed in by the what might feel constricting to constricting to someone who who enjoys a certain amount of privilege um, and that's where you get people like preppers who who like basically they're supposedly preparing for you know this the dissolution of society but are also uh fantasizing about it um and yeah i think that like and then um bringing in the israel palestine component is like is just so it, it, it like is that you know it's like a it's like an essay i wish i had written because <laughs> it's like you know it's so like on point there um especially once you like um you see like the city as this as the battleground for these competing cultures that are stand-ins for Israel and Palestine. And it's also this, um, you know, a, 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 a smaller place, you know, like a place where, where geography is being fought over. And also, you know, a, a testament or a, like, it's, it's kind of like a, um, a argument against multiculturalism, right? Because they're, that, that is like kind of the, the, the broader view of what of actual cultures like <laughs> kind of like uh, uh running into each other and kind of butting up against each other um versus the sort the basically the more defanged kind of multiculturalism that you see in like jackson where there's kind of you know it's there's not just white people but the culture is white um and you don't really like get to experience like that you don't see it as like a real realistic society which I mean, in some ways like kind of ties into it Keen was talking about where like it shuts the world out and, and it um, is so insularly focused. Uh, it it feels unrealistic in that way where you know um, you have like a town that like looks like the the whitest western town you could imagine um, and just like has like perfect diversity because like that that was probably something that the game designers wanted you know were aware of at the same time as not wanting to like actually sell you know sell uh buy the ideology that they were selling essentially like a way to kind of lamp not lampshade it but like to to sidestep it um so like yeah i think there's like it's just like such an interesting way that the game like produces an ideology while also like not uh while you know producing it while while like creating an aesthetic object that is completely like devoid of like explicitly acknowledging it um, that makes me think of something that I wanted to get to as well. Um, and I think that's a really interesting topic. I think, I mean, again, Yusuf, that was something you and I talked about before about how this game kind of ends up with these, uh, images where it's like, it wants, it, it knows 
that <clears throat> it's good to have a diverse cast. You know, I think there's also something that Uncharted, the first one, um, is probably one of the most like horrendous examples of this, where you're playing as Nathan Drake, who's a white guy. And I think pretty much the entirety or a huge portion of the enemies in the first game were black or brown. And you're, you know, in a foreign country, just having a great old adventure, just murdering like all these people. Um, and I think about this game in terms of like, uh, there's almost this idea of like an, an overcorrection, not an overcorrection, that's the wrong way to put it, but um, like a thoughtless diversity to this where we end up with things like you know what cameron wrote about with uh the killing of how am i forgetting her name again already nora i just yeah i <laughs> read that essay like four times this week um but where you end up with these things where you end up with this imagery that's uh you know i think like um you get this really loaded imagery where it almost feels like they just didn't think about it. it's like equal opportunity but then to to have this flattening effect that isn't flattening because it's not taking into consideration um w what these images mean when you have a white woman walking down this hall and and shooting a black woman uh and i feel like there's something about the way that this game handles diversity that is like almost points out some like inherent flaws with this like very like blanket approach it also feels like something that i'm not you know i'm a white guy i can't speak to it properly like for me some of this stuff like will almost be you know from like an intellectualized so i don't know also if the victories of what this game does in terms of having a more diverse cast ends up outweighing what you get when you have these these drawbacks at the same time if that makes sense yeah i mean it's such a it's such, it's like the truly the a mixed bag <laughs> there's like high highs and low lows mm -hmm. like like you know like i do think yeah like uh, that the work put into dina and ellie and and abby or like is like um i think unique in in what's what has been produced in game stories like there is depth there that just doesn't exist elsewhere um and at the same time yeah like you get um uh what happened with nora as as cameron pointed out in his great piece and then um uh like manny for example mm -hmm. <laughs> uh you know who's just who's just uh it's just like so such a disappointingly clear like blind spot and, and reliance on stereotype like where they're just like kind of let's you know let's just go let's just pull, pick from the latino character toolbox here and like kind of build this character out of composites of like what every other latino character in games looks like or talks like and behaves like um i mean now you can speak more to that as well like if you want to um yeah so it's it's tricky because like like I mentioned before, as as a queer woman of color, this game is really difficult to unpack in some ways because, on the one hand, I have Ellie and Dina, which 
if I saw that on screen, that would have made my life so much easier when I was younger. I mean, I say that even though I'm like 23, but younger, younger. Um, that would have been, and still is so important to me. And it's it's not something that we are seeing yet in AAA games and to be an explicit focus of a AAA game, um, which doesn't make it superior to say that same kind of representation in indie games. Um, but it, it, these are the games that most people who walk into a store will see on the shelves, right? These are the games that, at least for me, these were the games that allowed me to then discover indie games, discover my love for video games, and to realize what they could be and how much farther they have to go. So on one hand, I have Ellie and Dina, who mean so much to me as a queer woman, um, whose entire storyline just really resonated with me. Obviously, it won't resonate with all queer women, um, but at least for me, and as a bisexual woman, that storyline and that relationship and the care that has gone into that relationship is so important to me. And there are elements to Dina that I see myself in, like physically, um, but on the other hand, there is the component of me as a person of color that I cannot separate from who I am and also my queerness and so it makes reconciling with this game's diversity and inclusivity a lot more complicated than I would like for it to be because even though it gets Dina and Ellie so right from the moment that Manny opened up his mouth I was like oh okay like I, I can tell what this is and I I hoped for something different um but it was ultimately not um it could it's not the most egregious egregious example of a stereotypical latinx character and we've gotten a lot of those this year and we got a lot of those every year um i'm currently writing a piece on um games like valorant and um, apex legends and overwatch that all seem to have really intimately shared stereotypes about what Latinx people are and how we look like and how we sound like and how we act um, and the amount of depth that we have uh, but it, it still it, st it sticks out like a sore thumb like it was always a source of frustration that I couldn't really get over and that I still can't get over to the point that I mentioned it in my review at Paste which gave the game a 9.5 but I still made sure to take the time to be like, by the way, I'm really, I'm really frustrated with how this character was handled. Uh, so it's, it's difficult because, like I said, like, I'm so used to whether I want to or not, well, I don't want to, but I'm so used to being forced to compromise with video game storytelling in particular, mm. um, as a queer woman of color, like, it's like, okay, I, I get one thing well done but I get the other thing that is done so poorly like Manny um, the voice actor uh, you know he, he is Latinx so I think in that respect like yay the bar is not entirely below the ground um, but his writing is uh, and I've been told that uh, he was allowed to have a little bit of control over the script sort of uh, inject Spanish wherever he thought was fit so I think it's it might be more complicated than what I know and what we know 
from just the game, but at the same time, it's like, I wish it wasn't like this. I wish it didn't match up with every other stereotypical depiction of Latinx people in video games because it can be so much more and there's clearly a, a huge amount of effort that has gone into getting Ellie and Dita right and at least trying to do right by other characters and other sources of inclusivity, but this feels like it was so not thought out. Um, and that level of care as well as the disparity in the level of care between queer women and these specifically like people of color and specifically Nora as well. Um, I did notice that while I was playing, like the optics of Ellie beating a black woman, it, like does not, it, it immediately does not look good or resonate well or, and I'm surprised that like a lot of people didn't realize it, um, but it's just, and I, I, this is the same issue that I've had with a lot of Naughty Dog games, like, this is the first Naughty Dog game that has worked for me, because it hasn't been, it hasn't been as awful about race as the other ones, but that bar is so low that it's like, well, it's still pretty heinous about it, um, and it's hard to wrestle with that as a queer woman of color who really loves this game, and who acknowledges that it could be so much better, even though it it has all some things in really spectacular ways, but unfortunately, it's that classic tale of just, like, having to compartmentalize those things, uh, at least in my experience, just trying to figure out and focus on the positives while trying not to think too much of the negatives, but those negatives are also impossible to ignore, and I can't separate them as much as I would like to, because I can't separate my own queerness and race from everything else about me, or from each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think, like, with with Nora, I mean, Cameron could speak more to it, but it really, like, it didn't come up as much, probably because, because it was the, the way it was done, right? Like, we don't see her actually murdering Nora. It, it happens through through context. It happens through... It happens off-camera, and it's kind of, like, cut away from, and then it becomes much more about uh, Ellie's suffering mm-hmm. for for having to do it, and then the, that awesome T-shirt scene. <laughs> uh, like, that, that tech. It's about that tech. And Nora is forgotten. Um, and, yeah, I think, like, that is like the the the, re- the issue there it's like it's one like where they're smart enough to like I think with Manny they just didn't think of like I, I wonder like if it was like it's interesting what you said about like kind of, kind of them like giving him like free reign to to insert his own like phrases but I like I'm like I'm wondering like where the direction like what kind of direction it was right like mm-hmm. it's like you know make sure it sounds like Latinx <laughs> like yeah. make sure you're you know your your culture comes through and like what you're saying you know like just don't sound like a white guy right like yeah exactly. <laughs> like i like wonder what? how that was behind the scenes and i would love to get to know more because it, it makes mm-hmm. it different a little different when the voice actor themselves is latinx and you mm-hmm. know the quote-unquote what some people might call is the stereotypical latinx accent is a real latinx person's accent and voice and mannerisms but there's always i don't know like just I think the direction could have been a lot better <laughs> in a lot of ways. And well, I was definitely thinking about it um, when, like, the Halo... Did you watch the Halo Infinite trailer? Uh, no. Because, like, the main... <laughs> oh, wait, oh, yes, yes, yes. I saw oh, yeah. the, the, the main dude. Yeah, I saw it, like, 
during a stream, but I didn't pay much attention because I'm a oh, regular yeah. person. But yeah, <laughs> understandable, understandable. <laughs> but yeah, I was like with him. I was kind of like I was waiting for the for the manny treatment, and actually, I, I don't think it. I think it actually wasn't bad. Like it, he was kind of like yeah, he had like Latinx accent. Like you know, he had he clearly was like Latinx, but um, it didn't like it wasn't like a it didn't feel as like you know relying on tropes and stereotypes yeah but it's kind of like sucks that you have to like grit your teeth when when that kind of character shows up on on screen um cameron do you do you want to talk about your essay a little bit like because i you know i think it's obviously obviously relevant here uh yeah sure the yeah the the essay i wrote and you know uh probably probably better to read it than to hear me recount it but um (laughs) Yeah, it's a, it's about the kind of uh, structural and formal element that uh, lends toward the racism of the game, basically. Um, you know, there, there's kind of a, a move in in race studies, particularly in the field that I'm in, which is you know media theory, visual culture studies, kind of depending on who you ask, um, to look beyond just uh, pure representation uh, or diversity, um, and then to look at the mechanisms that allow us to have discussions about. Uh, the imp- implicit racial biases of the way that media work. Um, and so this is me just kind of taking that lens and putting it here. Um, and really I got here um, through the dissertation mark that, that I talked about uh, earlier. I wrote a chapter of my dissertation on The Last of Us 1, and I wrote about the same cut that happens with uh, the two brothers. And so the, the kind of final chapter in the book that I'm working on will be kind of a longer Last of Us 1, Last of Us 2, looking at the way that the cut works, but functionally it's exactly the same. Um, there, there are moments of black death that happen, specifically black death, that happen in The Last of Us 1 and 2 that are obscured uh, in ways that, that for the most part don't happen to anyone else. Uh, in fact, uh, this didn't make it into the essay, but I don't even think it made it into a draft that I turned in, but initially... I want to look at Marlene's death too. Marlene is the leader of the Fireflies from the first game, and Marlene's death, which is uh, kind of edited around in the first game, actually gets represented in this game, so that you can see this reverse shot of uh, of Joel shooting her in the head. Um, uh, or maybe that's at the end of the remastered version. Anyway, somewhere here, uh, we get this uh, like awful reverse shot of uh, Marlene being murdered, and then a cut that happens with it as well. Um, so uh, it, it's all to say, right? You know, if uh, something that, that Natalie, that, that you made me think of, there's a few years ago, um, Matt Damon and someone else, but, but Matt Damon was, is the person who says this phrase, um, but he's, he was being interviewed about maybe Project Greenlight or another one of those kind of um, initiatives that he works with. And the, the soundbite that came out of the interview was uh, uh, diversity happens in front of the camera, right? And uh, that's, I think, how The Last of Us and how Naughty Dog thinks about diversity. Uh, and I think that actually lends to how they have mis- mishandled uh, or just been involved in directly racist casting by, for example, having a non-black woman playing a black woman, things like that. Um, I, I think that they think in the realm of the visual is where multicultural diversity happens. And in the process of production, 
uh, whether that is uh, on the writing team, whether that's in the realm of directors, whether that is in the casting of people or in the formal um, direction of the thing, that all of that is ultimately framing for what happens on the stage of the game. But if all the actors in the game kind of running around, all the things that happen in the, in the game space, uh, if all of those things are happening on a stage, if we can imagine it that way, then there are uh, formal directive moves that uh, frame that in particular kinds of ways. And there's also the building of the stage itself. Um, and if the building of that stage or if those formal directive moves have different interests than the, the kind of diversity or representation that is ostensibly happening in front of us, then, then I think that we have to talk about the game or whatever the media object we have to talk about it in kind of two separate levels mm -hmm. um you know the structure that allows the thing to exist and then the thing itself yeah um and and so i mean i, I natalie i think you're exactly right like uh the what is striking to me about the example of nora is i, I think the language you use is that the optics are bad uh like um, so it is so apparent that the optics are bad yeah. And yet they, they just can't, they, they, they don't get there. And then there's this additional, I think, for just, you know, completely formal decision about cuts and where that fits, you know, the, the fact that it is immediately um, uh, absorbed into this moment of care um, and mm -hmm. it becomes the, the kind of staging for um, emotional development for a character. Whether we think that works or not is to, is to the side. I think narratively, that's exactly what's happening there. Um, so yeah, there's just all kinds of of uh, you know. If I thought that they were choices, I think I might have a, a higher opinion on them. But I don't think that they're choices at all. I think that they are things that are just unthought. Um, I think that there is a uh, piecing together of narrative here of what would be cool and what would be most striking and not any kind of consideration for what the images they are producing actually mean when you look at them as images. And I can understand uh, in a general sense how that happens, right? Like if you get caught up in something and your perspective is on this whole big weird object and, and how it all fits together and things like that, um, I think inherently, uh, I, I don't know if biases, but uh, normative structures, right? Just the things we take for granted, those things are gonna show up more and more often because you can't think about every single detail. Um, someone is employed to make sure that Ellie's heart rate audio works uh, correctly and someone is dedicating months of their life to that, but it doesn't seem like anyone on this team is developing months or even much time or consideration to thinking about the way that racial representation happens either uh, in a representative or in a structural way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it makes you think of, uh, especially reading your piece, made, made me think of like, I know they have the equivalent of like checking out the dailies, you know, but is it just that it's, this, this is such a, you know, mainstream video games and then you, you have some systematic problems here too, obviously some structural problems, but is it just that there's such a, such a big kind of like, you can't turn a boat very quickly that these things are like you're getting little snippets of what's being worked on from all directions and so then you do end up with this kind of uh all these layers of kind of subconscious or normative i think is that was a good way to put it um uh, attitudes coming into these things where you're not catching this stuff because you're not sitting down and saying all right let's look at 
let's look at you know the ten minutes of of game that uh, that we kind of finished with right now. Like let's look at this and look at it on its own and sort of like actually grapple with this thing. Like what it is? Does it is it doing what we want it to do? Um, instead, you feels like with so many big budget games, you end up with this thing that's like out of control of the people who made it in a well, certain sense yeah and i think it has to do too with the uh, you know for example film right you know with dailies film just comes together differently than than video right, games yeah. do right i mean you can the the level of maneuverability it's funny you use you know you can't turn a boat quickly because i in the difference between a film or a uh, in a video game, I mean, you can turn a video game a lot more quickly than a film in the sense that, you know, if you are Michael Bay and you do six months of shooting and you finally get into the editing booth um, and you've got big pieces missing, uh, then you've either got to go reshoot mm. and that costs a whole lot of money and a lot of time and you've got to hope that contract negotiations work out in such a way that you can do that. Uh, or you have to like re-edit your film and, and move it into a different kind of way. And obviously, Michael Bay is not in the editing booth of his own thing. Although there, there's a great article from Rolling Stone from a few years ago where it's talking about him looking frame by frame at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle effect shots and then sending them back to the effects studio. Uh, so maybe oh, he yeah. does. You know, maybe he cares about that kind of thing. He but, cares about what the turtles, how they sweat. Yeah. Yes, know? it's very important for Bebop and Rocksteady to look right. But. <laughs> Uh, but but that's all to say. I mean, I think it has to do. I was talking to another critic at the time, and, and it was before I even wrote this piece. Uh, and I was talking about kind of the structure for it. And the the other critic in, in this conversation was like, "Oh wow, I didn't really think about that because we were so focused on Ellie at that time." And and, uh, and I think that that makes a whole lot of sense. In that, um, I think at every chance in that in that section and kind of in the game I, you know i don't think the the problems of the game are are reducible to to you know one four minute segment but uh i i think that at every single turn the the question in the game or in the game design mind or in the kind of narrative design of the game was what does this tell us about ellie what does this tell us about her position in the world and how is this telling us about where she's going or what is it telling us about where she's going and I think that in that perspective, it's an extremely readable scene. I mean, it makes a lot of sense and it's artfully done. I think people really powerfully connect to that scene. And I think that that scene is what allows people to powerfully connect to that next one of kind of uh, intense care. Probably the, the scene with the best depiction of care uh, that, that is in the game. Um, you know, it's if, if there is an antithesis to the nihilism that, that we've been talking about this whole kind of way, then it, it's that moment. Um, it's that moment that makes the end of the game sting, uh, I think, because, uh, you know, you have that in the back of your mind that, that makes it work. But um, I think that it is typical of media that, that looks to um, normative, again, normative systems of care to think about who gets thrown under the bus in order to make that engine go. Um, that's a terrible mixed metaphor, uh, but uh, uh, but you get what I mean, right? I mean, you know who you know who who gets to be us in The Last of Us, and, and who doesn't? And I think across both games, that's heavily, heavily racially coded, um, and, and it is particularly not just racially coded, but anti-black. Uh, blackness functions as the kind of uh, fecundity that allows other people to live their lives and to learn about themselves. Um, and this is not a unique claim to me whatsoever. You know, recently we have uh, Zakaya Aman Jackson's book, um, 
becoming post-human maybe becoming human i had to look behind me to look at it but fred moten uh, makes a very similar argument uh, across all of his work basically um, and there are lots and lots of, of black academics from the past 40 years who have made the argument that the way that liberal humanism functions, the engine for liberal humanism of thinking about people's ability to self-determine is always racially coded and is heavily dependent on anti-blackness. So uh, this is not me spinning this out of thin air, but I think that the game provides us a really acute and specific uh, example of how that functions. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know if if there's anything else that we want to address. On some hands, I feel like, on one hand, I feel like we covered a lot talking about this. On the other hand, I feel like there's a lot that we haven't gotten into at all. It's also been an hour and 20 minutes, so I don't want to keep everyone here on a Sunday evening. Um, maybe I'll just go around and say, is there is there anything else that we want to get to with this game? that that feels like a, a glaring blind spot from what we've discussed so far. Well, can, can we ask each other questions? Yes. Um, can I have a question? <laughs> I have a question for you uh, that, that I was kind of thinking about uh, after reading your piece. Um, are you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here. <clears throat> okay, sorry. Ooh, I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Do you think, I mean... Um, what do you think the relationship is between this kind of, you know, uh, resuscitated pastoralism or, uh, you know, the nature without the human? What do you think the relationship is between that and, say, like, eco-fascism? Um, or, you know, the idea that, that there's a necessary requirement to partition off nature and to keep it holy and sacred. Um, and that, you know, we can do whatever we want in order to do that. You know, that's highly racially coded as well. I mean, do you think there's a relationship to that in the game, or do you think it just kind of, like, shoots past those questions? Um, again, like, I think a lot of the um, ecological discussion in the game is probably not even intentional. I think, like, as a text, if you view it, like, any text you view, any you can accommodate for intentional fallacy there, you know? Um it's still worth investigating in terms of that but I don't think there's any conscious effort made by Naughty Dog or any of the writing team to correlate those things um, that being said I do think like and I was thinking this earlier on this might not this actually has nothing to do with eco-fascism in particular but a point I wanted to make earlier on about these you know the resuscitation of pastoral spaces and the juxtaposition of those with derelict cities is I think it was Yusuf, who mentioned earlier on that, like you know, the infections not well, the infected are not necessarily a threat anymore. They're not the as much of a threat as they were in the first game whatsoever. And I tried to get into this in my piece, but I didn't articulate it at length. But I think there's this um, quote from Christopher Hitchens in his book on Orwell about the premise of brutality. And as opposed to being an act or something that is enacted on someone, brutality is actually simultaneously sort of um, a reverse action in which it is the course. I think his exact words are, it's a coarsening effect produced in the strong by meeting out violence against the weak or something like that. And I think the the violence against nature and by, like, you know, more insularly within that, the violence against the infected is used as a means of perpetuating this 
um, adopted sense of entitlement by humanity in The Last of Us where they are allowed to be violent towards anyone and anything they want because it's, you know, necessary for survival and it just perpetuates that, which is largely um, false at the time of the second game. Um, so I think that if you're to talk about, like, the correlation between pastoral spaces and eco-fascism, I think that it's not intentional, but I think that these spaces do inform how absolutely atrocious the behaviour of humans in this world is, if that makes sense. Um, they, they underscore it in such a way that it accentuates the violence. That might sound a bit nonsensical, but it's it's tough to articulate. No, 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 yeah a kind of uh very you know backbone or a verification uh a, a, a do what thou wilt <laughs> yeah because, in, in the face of nature because to like yeah going to, to eco-fascism it's like yeah it, eco-fascism or at least the idea that you know like the sentiment you see now nowadays where it's like nature's healing mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. when you see uh clear rivers i guess in, Ven- in venice um is you know it is there's like a implicit violence toward hum toward certain humans not not all humans uh, to to the ones who you know t- in indicting the entire species um it's kind of it, it's 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 generally aimed at 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 people who who might not be able to live their lives in like a perfectly like uh environmentally sustainable way um for any number of reasons and yeah, I think that it you know you see that in the game. It's like uh, the indictment of people uh, who who aren't living in their homestead, who aren't living in the homesteads. Basically, it's like that the chaos lives in the cities, um, and there's something to that, like where it's kind of uh, like the, uh, the the choice, like the choices that are that have been made are being judged, essentially, like how how people are reacting to to, to nature, to the infection. And yeah, I think your 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 Hitchens quote makes sense where it's like like that um that idea of of controlling of controlling nature naturally um grafts on to, to controlling humans, to controlling other humans. Um and it's built into the idea of like of a settlement of 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 that because like, you know, if you could take it back to to uh the European settlers in in the US and how they treated in, indigenous people. I mean, they were seen as part of nature you know like they were like they were the wild animals that had to be put down um that were dangerous uh certainly dangerous to them but they were also living in their territory like you know these settlers were like going far out of of what was considered safe so that they could expand um and and snatch a piece of land for their own and that with it with it with that came danger but also you know like it would it makes sense why there would be danger right um and in, in, in this apocalypse, like in this in the Last of Us apocalypse, that it's there's something similar there where you're like, you know, like the what is the reason for so much of this? Like why, why are they, like why, like we they're not and, and they're not <laughs> they're not think, no one's in the no one in the game is thinking about the about like their place in the world like or or why they are doing what they're doing like or their future or or their responsibility um and that's the nihilist part of it obviously but it's all it is still it does like give reason to question like why are the developers and the writers not then trying to 
say something beyond just everyone's fucked. I think uh, the the one thing the games, both of the games, do try to say in their final moments, though, are like it is this. Uh, uh, it's it, perfect for like the prestige format. This thing where uh, everyone is horrible. Uh, there's there's no use really expecting better but then also look at the young ones like maybe they'll be better and then the last of us part two is yeah but they're gonna inherit your shit (laughs) but then maybe maybe (laughs) after all of it they might come through a little bit better i mean it's part of what i was thinking like with natalie's article and and julie's article as well um uh, about this game and i think Natalie gets into a lot of the specifics because it's post-release, post that uh, extremely uh, (laughs) beneficial embargo or whatever they put on the details of the game, but being able to to say, uh, okay, so what's, maybe what's a third of these games look like? Maybe a third one? I, I don't know. I have my doubts. Natalie convinced me when I was reading the piece, but then the idea of what, what goes past this, if you can have some level of hope you know if you can try to look at this which would maybe be in some ways validate a whole uh, a trilogy would maybe validate some of what the last of us has now become as as two games um that you move beyond a lot of this sort of like i don't know it, it seems like kind of like sub sophomore kind of like nihilism and and say yeah you know things are bad things are extremely bad um but like look toward what what rebuilding looks like which maybe you know maybe uh naughty dog would say that's what this game is about but i think it's it's such small slivers of hope you know it's um it's a game that to me like those pictures of panda like uh venice clear water and saying look nature is healing it's it's this thing of just this like malaise and just mindless like just like kind of loathing for the state of things but like it's not really getting us anywhere it didn't get gen x anywhere um anyway that's a rambly way of saying that no that that is so that is so true it's like it's so much harder to have hope and and it's also like not something that i feel like it's something that yeah like as people of a certain level of privilege can, are, are able to wade in their like despair because mm-hmm. they're they're able to do it from a certain from like a place of somewhat comfort which i think a lot of these a lot of these post-apocalypse stories are are written in that in that scope where it's like god you're just like seeing the pandemic and just being like oh i can't wait for things to go back to normal you know i can't wait for uh thing for you know th- this is these are you know such singularly awful times etc like uh just having like a, a bar to, to fall back on. Um, and it's like, and which, which is, you know, necessity, like that is like the, the, the root of a post-apocalypse, right? Where it's like, you know, there is like a good times that has, that has been shattered. Like even the first last of us starts in a very typical suburban home. Like, you know, hmm. the dad's working, working class dad and his soccer daughter. Um, <laughs> in her like pink pony room like just like every part of it is like you know halcyonic and like americana but um 
it, yeah, it's just like instructive that that is what needs to fall apart for us to like reckon with the the outcome uh, and the and, and but that also means that like there is no like the the people writing these stories don't have like an idea for the other side because all it's only about the the pessimism of like of reckoning with like of the worst parts of society and kind of wringing your hands over it versus like seeing you know um like some of the protests happening now like where people are like not sitting at home and doom scrolling <laughs> like they're out they're out mm-hmm. like organizing and risking themselves to like um actually en- enact change and like i think there's you see like kind of a, a sh- there's it's just coming from a completely different place than 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 those of us who might be just more like kind of maybe like you know might where ecofascism might seem more like appealing because we're just like what you know we're so we're you know justifiably worried about the environment but are able to like are able to like be so detached from the realities of like what most people go through mm-hmm. yeah and i mean i wouldn't advocate for uh I don't think any work needs to be prescriptive or be, you know, I don't think you have to make hopeful work if you don't, if you don't feel it, but there is something about, I think maybe the sheer breadth of these games in terms of hours spent with them um, and repetition of, of like how many awful things can you see these, these characters doing to each other and you, I don't know. It just does kind of make you want like, you know, come on we're on part two now like give me a little bit more um but yeah yeah natalie can anything you want to add to this picture of the last of us before we before it's never discussed again outside of uh cameron's (laughs) cameron's work fall 2021 everybody get ready we can talk about the last of us two again (laughs) Keen, you can go first if you want. Uh, I mean, at this point, I just want them to add more threats to the guitar for DLC. Um, <laughs> if they did that, I'd be pretty happy. Um, but yeah, um, no, not you go first. Uh, okay, uh, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so I was hoping you would go first in case you... <laughs> uh, but... Uh, let's see. So... <clears throat> I, I think I have a different reaction to the nihilism in this game. Um, I think, and, and I think this is ultimately really subjective, and I'm fully happy to embrace the fact that I am a bitter and pessimistic, cynical person. Um, but I guess for me, it, the nihilism resonated a bit differently because... Um, like we mentioned before, I don't think a creator is beholden to writing something that is necessarily super optimistic and full of hope. Um, I think I think the moments of hope in this game, they didn't really balance out the sort of pessimism, but I did think they offered glimmers into what I hope will be a part three that not only provides a more balanced picture in terms of um, pessimism and hope and looking towards the future in a broken world, but also one that uh, 
you know, there are a lot of things in this game that were touted as normalizing what isn't normalized in the everyday, like this queer relationship between two women um, and a healthy one, and there are a bunch of other things, but it also really normalizes a lot of the things that are so deeply normalized in video games and especially prestige ones, like my piece centers on the fact that this game, this series can't really imagine a world where mothers actually matter in, in comparison to fatherhood especially like when we were talking mm-hmm. about um the things that just weren't thought about that don't seem like they were considered i just think about how abby has like her mother is never even mentioned to be dead or alive or referenced in any way like it is just about her father and her story centers on her father and the effect that his death has on her um And so I would like a third game that goes a step further in normalizing what is not normalized. Like, I would like a third game that focuses on Ellie and Dina as queer mothers or on Lev as one of the few trans characters in prestige games um, and Abby as a very atypical um, woman in video games. Like, I would like for... A third part really for a lot of reasons but I really want one that can offer that balance because it feels like part two is sort of like the middle of the road for me and that it explores the worst of humanity but it does offer a few glimmers into the best of humanity and those were enough for me to want a third part that is a lot more focused on rebuilding and on a future in this series that isn't held back by Joel and by the fact that the story is so hung up on fatherhood and how Ellie can never really escape her father's shadow. Um, And going back to the pessimism thing, I guess like, I guess for me it was a little cathartic and the use of catharsis in media is something entirely subjective. But I guess like, as someone whose mom is a grocery store worker and who like, like has to kind of see the worst of humanity at her job that like barely pays her and that now I have told her to just not go back to work and that I will handle all of our bills as like a 23 year old college student who's making more than my parents like have put together um and just seeing the way that people have treated her and either been racist or just been awful just because she's a grocery store worker um and how people are so they're so in refusal of thinking about people besides themselves that they are willing to cough on people just to get them sick because they don't want to wear a mask i i saw the nihilism of this game and how awful humanity can be and its depiction of that i think it resonated with me differently and i absolutely get why people felt like it was too pessimistic but and i might just be a really better person but i did it did connect with me and as someone who is very much not privileged who like is very much lower class like almost poor and you know just is marginalized in several ways and uh, it just resonated with me and it resonated I guess a lot more positively and um there was a level of catharsis there um and what I'm hoping is that at least for me games like this one or like Nier Automata that show the absolute worst um 
sort of envisions uh, or like visions of despair that you can have in that st- in those storylines when they're juxtaposed with the most hopeful moments i think they make those hopeful moments resonate so much more like games like that show the worst of humanity um i think are the ones that work for me when they show the best of humanity but um that mm-hmm. i guess is is like a, a different take but yeah i just i i want a, the last of us part three that thinks that these normalized things like black women and black people in general just not surviving this apocalypse basically i want a third last of us that does see that as a possibility i want a last of us that sees motherhood as something worth valuing um i want to see a last of us that doesn't just see ellie as part of her care part of her uh, part of her is like her own character but she is undeniably tied to Joel, and I want to see a Last of Us where she is not tied to Joel um, in the really deep ways that she is in this game. Um, I just want... <laughs> there's so much imagination that has gone into this broken post-apocalyptic world, but it feels limited in a lot of ways in terms of the writing, and I would just really like to see a Last of Us Part Three where what is not normalized is normalized further. Mm-hmm. I think that's completely fair. Uh, everything you're saying, like I think, part of it, and I was glad. Uh, I like when it happens when we have a game that people have strongly opposed feelings on, <laughs> because it's not, uh, you know, my my view on this game. Like I, I don't like it that much. But then you talk about those things on there are a lot of aspects that when I was playing I thought this is you know this is really something um even Cameron mentioning you know in in something as uh you know with all the problems that go on the Nora scene you do have the like like Cameron said you have the scene where uh Ellie's being like bandaged up and like treated by Dina and you look at the potential if you can you know uh hopefully not have it be a racist scene but when you have something that's so that would be um, nice. yeah yeah <laughs> but when you have something that's just so like so just like kind of just dark and moody and then you do have um you know i i'm kind of a sucker for that in a lot of fiction as well like you know i i won't go on a big tangent about it but like uh Dance, dance, dance by Haruki Murakami has a has a great example of of this. I think Murakami in general is good at showing extreme darkness in characters, and then juxtaposing that with you know David Lynch does this I think really well as well. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It's not no game. I think should be beholden to uh, to trying to have a positivity that maybe it doesn't feel. I just yeah well, I mean I have a lot of thoughts on this I don't want to go into them yeah it's a really complicated topic that <laughs> would require more yeah. than a single podcast yeah and your cat wants to weigh in yes. and that would be oh, I'm glad you, yeah I'm glad she got her final but, say in and that you were able to hear it I understood <laughs> yeah. part of what she was saying but it wasn't completely clear um Kian did you want to did you want to add anything before we kind of uh, wrap things up 
Um, maybe just uh, uh, like I, I completely agree with what I, th- I think everybody here has mentioned it at some point, but the the small moments in the Last of Us Part Two are absolutely what make it for me. I think um, in general stories that attempt to be too like you know grandiose or serious with their themes can often derail themselves um, very early on, which the Last of Us Part Two almost did for me. As I said, like five hours in, I almost just packed it in and said, "Fuck this." Um, like um like my favorite novel um like personal like not that i think it's the best ever but my personal favorite is cat's cradle and the reason i like that is because of one single line in the entire book and i think the last was part two generally has a much better understanding of the first game as i said earlier on of why it is important to have these small moments um but i also do think the scene in which Nora's is killed feeding directly into the bandage scene is just inherently problematic like if if that was a film, I don't. I think you'd notice it much quicker. But with games, because if you've not played the game and you don't know when the cutscene ends, you're sort of on edge at all times, ready to resume actual play. And I think sometimes it's difficult to interrogate things like cuts. Like until I read Cameron's piece, I hadn't thought about that cut in that way. And I think Cameron's right to point out that it was actually more likely an unthought thing than a genuine, like than an actual considered one. But I think that's even worse. But um, I I I could talk for a long time now. I'll probably just wrap it up instead of <laughs> instead of saying too much for too long. Yeah, the no. the unthought nature, right? I mean, the 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 thing that I think that is important to um to surface when that kind of conversation comes up, right, is that that racism structures our imagination. Uh, you know, it it is. It is it it is a fantasy to believe that that racism is somehow a uh, or or that it is entirely some sort of you know cognitive purposeful act uh, you know and that's not just like questions about implicit bias although that's certainly a part of the conversation but but quite literally uh, racial thinking structures the the way that that at least you know most of us in, in the West and in the global North. Uh, the way that we think about basically everything in, in ways that we are conscious of in ways that we're not. And, and yeah, so when we say something about, you know, an unthought thing and it being so much worse, I mean, it, I 100% agree it is so much worse, but also that means that it functions like everything else. Um, and I, I think that, um, you know, the way that you get through that or the way that you deprogram that or the way that you think about it in different ways is by you know, attentiveness to it. Um, and I'm not, you know, the reason that I see it is not just because, you know, I just happened to, to stumble on it or something like that. It's that, you know, I went through years of training in order to learn how to read images and to particularly learn how to read images in relationship to the long history of anti-blackness in the United States and, and Europe. And so like, it's this kind of thing where it's like, I, it's not like, I, I don't, expect them to somehow have figured that out you know at naughty dog and to fix it next time um but but i do think that like close critical attention to that kind of mechanism uh when it shows up in uh, i I think really egregious ways like you know the the piece that i'm writing about but then in uh the the smaller moments right um I, i think that that is one extremely uh uh you know I want to say it, it moves the bar, but uh, you know I've been a game critic long enough to to say I don't know how much anything moves the bar. 
Um, <laughs> and, and that's not that's not pessimism, and that's not a nihilism. It's just a, a, a statement. Yeah, it's, it's just a statement uh, that you know. Uh, my friend Daniel Joseph, uh, big Marxist critic. Uh, if you've encountered him on on Twitter, uh, you, you you probably know all about it. Um, but uh, but you know his his whole thing right is uh, is about if if we want a Marxism that that uh, becomes a movement uh, and becomes a long term thing, then you have to recognize that it won't happen in your lifetime. Um, that it is a truly multiple generational uh, transformation that has to happen in order to make people think or get people to think or convince people to think or just to make it a normative statement to think more about class relations and about uh, you know uh, labor and the way that labor functions. And you can go back to, gosh, Chicago anarchists in 1875, and you're going to find them saying the exact same thing. So um, I, I think it's not like, Oh dang! If we if I can read this camera movement just a little bit better, uh, then you know next Last of Us three they're going to get it right. Uh, I don't have any expectation of that, but I do hope that you know my, my kind of purpose for writing the thing is, I hopefully that encourages more people to look for those kinds of things. And and, and if I think there's a takeaway, uh, and the reason I'm saying all this, uh, you know, if I think that there's a takeaway from the article, it's that I, I hope for people to. Uh, be more attentive to that in in their criticism and it doesn't have to I think we're often in a trap as game critics I'm sure that every single person here has felt this that you have to turn the the thing that you think is important into the whole piece as a part uh, as opposed to like this is something that is part of a complex assemblage of all kinds of other things and I think mm -hmm. the more that we can talk about racialized framings and games in conjunction with other stuff as opposed to pitching the piece that's about you know, racial framing in games. Um, I think that that moves the bar uh, in in important ways, and so that's that's partially the the impetus for writing the piece. And, and I want to say, you know, thanks to uh, Reed and Yusuf for for inviting me and asking me to do it. Um, you know, really happy to do it, and uh, had a had a great time writing it. Well, hey, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, I <laughs> no, I. Uh... I think uh, all three of you did knockout pieces on this game, and I encourage people to read them. Um, I often wonder about I wonder about this a lot. Uh, you run a small games criticism site, Yusuf. I don't know if you run one of those as well. Hey, I just um, work here. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's something to uh, I thought. Um, because Cameron's uh, ended off the month on this, and I thought, oh boy, this is like, uh, largely seems like such a negative month. And I was thinking about it, and I'm like, it's not really. It's, uh, it's here are, I think, five things that five people found interesting to discuss about this game that I think are uh, aspects of something can be... Um, can be pretty damning but i think it's important to look at things beyond you know the internet uh reaction of the binary this is good or this is bad like i don't know i'm just thinking about that in terms of what cameron was saying too um yeah i mean i think it's chip away think, at things right i think it's like think things or especially on twitter and social media like there's like the pressure for you know a piece to be interpreted as a review or mm -hmm. as something where you're kind of just like, oh, we're t I'm talking about the game as a whole. It's like, no, I'm just talking about what I think I can lend to the discussion. 
um, and as you know, as, speaking about criticism, obviously. So I think that like that's always my goal in writing, and I think it, it's like this. Everyone's pieces this month have have proven that have, have proven that like goal or that that adhered to that um, idea because like it's we're just trying to to broaden the discussion around the game, and I think that all the pieces have really done that. So I'm really happy with the month. Yeah, and then I ran them through our patented uh, calculator, and it told me that The Last of Us Part Two gets a seven out of ten. Wow! Uh, <laughs> sorry, now uh, that, that thing is real consistent. I, I know that you uh, gave it a score before. That was taken into consideration <laughs> by the machine. It it crunched that up with all the words, and that's what it. Well, that's what it gave a seven us. out of ten obviously means it's a terrible game, right? So uh, it's a. It's a yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> anything less than an eight out of ten is just terrible yeah. and has no nuance or anything at that least, we can explore. At least it didn't get a six. That would be just complete Ooh, right. complete dog shit. No man's land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's not be let's not get get, get crazy here. <laughs> um Alright, well we're we're coming up on two hours, which is uh I think what one 115th or so of The Last of Us Part 2 so that that's probably enough. You can listen to this mm. podcast on you would ju- You would just be clearing the tutorial by this point and... <laughs> but you shouldn't listen to podcasts when you're clearing the tutorial. You have yeah, to you wait until you're doing the exploration segments and then you can turn it on. <laughs> exactly. For some background noise. Um, yeah, am, am I cutting anyone off from, from making a final point here? I feel like this is... Uh, this is it. You gotta get them in before the door closes. And the last of us two is never talked about again <laughs> until next year. Yeah, fall of twenty twenty one when my book comes out, we can talk about it again. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we'll have an, uh, a reading, a live reading on Twitch. Uh, Cameron can sit in a public library if those uh, are safe to go into again, and stream himself on Twitch, and then we can have a discussion. My local library is open. We can go. I live is in it? Georgia. Oh yeah, we're we're living in it. <laughs> but should yeah. we go? Is the question. No, you can. <laughs> oh, okay. Can pick up, yeah, it's you easy. can pick up books outside of mine. They wrap them up and they say you can schedule a time to pick them up. That's nice. That's kind of awesome. Nice. Yeah. It's like a present. It is like a little present, a little present that. Yeah. Anyway, let's not get into <laughs> library funding. <laughs> that's a whole other. That's a whole other topic. Um, so let's let's go around. I want to, if anyone has anything they want to promote or tell people where to find them, let's go to uh, let's go to Kian first. Where can people find you? What should they look at of yours? Um, on Twitter is probably best. Uh, my handle is Keenmar Zero. For people who might not know Irish names, that's spelled C I A N M A H E R Zero. Um, Actually, I, th- I have um, an interview with Naughty Dog this week, so I'll have a piece coming out probably in the next week or two on The Last of Us Part 2, probably the last one I'm going to write about the game. Um, mm. so. that's, that's too bad because we're not supposed to talk about it after this podcast, so <laughs> I, don't, I, can't, I can't read it. <laughs> but maybe, maybe next year we can revisit. Yeah, in next year in autumn 21 when we talk about this again. Yeah, exactly. We can, I'll postpone the publication until then. Please, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. 
Uh, well, that's good. Yeah, go and look for that, and uh, make sure you're paying attention to Keen's write, writing in general because it's good. There's a lot of it out there. <laughs> you're not... You're still... You got vim and vigor. You and Natalie, both of you. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, Keen is unmatchable. Like, I don't know how he does it. Like, I just do not know. He's incredible. Um... Natalie, speaking of, where can people find you and where should they find you? Yeah, so I am on Twitter at Hardymesia. That is uh, H-E-A-R-T. Why did I forget? Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) Why did I forget the alphabet? I don't know. Okay. So my Twitter is Hardymesia. It's H-E-A-R-T. R-T-M-E-C-I-A. I don't know what's going on with me right now. I'm short-circuiting. I think I've been uh, done with talking about The Last of Us 2 for at least like the next few days because I have uh, written a lot about it. I've written on Ali's violence and the way that her gender sort of intersects with discussions about morality. I wrote Paste Magazine's review for it. Uh, I am in the process of writing several interview pieces that I have in the pipeline with people involved uh, in the game for Fanbyte Media, where I am the featured contributor. And uh, yeah, so I talk a lot about video games on Twitter, sometimes The Last of Us Part 2 and sometimes not. Uh, But yeah, that's where you can find me. Um, sometimes when we have guests, I like to be like, oh, well, they wrote the one, this one thing aside from bullet points that I can link to in the show notes. And I was thinking that the amount of articles that you've written on The Last of Us 2, Natalie, I think, (laughs) like, I don't know. I don't know if we have enough space on the show notes to to link them all at this point. Yeah, just just the the least worst one. But yeah, I I I mean I say that I'm done talking about The Last of Us Two, but it's all that's in my brain and this week I am publishing um a piece on Dina with uh interviews that I had with her voice actress, Shannon Woodward, and uh two artists involved with her um, entire concept art so I'm not done talking oh, nice. about this game uh, I guess so this is my um, this is where I live now so can't get away it's from n- it it's nice to have one of those especially when you're freelance where you're like no I still have things to discuss about this thing that I put all this time into Yeah. instead of the opposite problem when you play something <laughs> and you think oh Christ like there is nothing about this <laughs> there's no content that I can turn out of this for money god yeah um Cameron mm-hmm. tell the people where you live on the internet uh you can find me on, on the Twitter. internet yeah <laughs> no we're not else. in real life <laughs> uh <laughs> well uh my social security number is my mother's <laughs> name and my bank account uh no, uh, twitter.com slash cconzelman. Um, it, it's probably better to link that in the show notes. Uh, mm-hmm. The, uh, yeah, I wrote this piece. I, I got other stuff coming out. Uh, you know, check that out. My, I, I would say that my, you know, I used to be, uh, I used to freelance a whole lot, a whole, 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 whole lot. Um, and uh, once I was done with graduate school, I freelance less. And now I'm working on the book, so check out, um, check out. Uh, uh, I've got a book coming out on video games and speculation. I just signed the contract for that, so that'll come out hopefully next fall uh, when we can talk about The Last of Us Part Two again. Um, and 
uh, yeah, you can go to rangedtouch.com. Um, I have kind of a media network that, that we don't have any titles, but I'm a part of. Uh, we do all kinds of cool podcasts and things like that. So we do Game Study Study Buddies, which is where uh, Michael Lutz and I take games of ge- or books of game studies and we read them and then we kind of interpret them and make them accessible. So it's like, what if you took a class with uh, Michael and I or listened to a, a lecture with Michael and I where we kind of walk you through game studies. So it's appropriate for people who are a little bit curious um, or and you're interested in what's going on in game studies. or And it's also appropriate for people who... Um, are like game studies people. So uh, we really do try to angle that for anyone who just might be interested in like what the hell is going on in the past oh, 50 years of talking about games um, and sometimes longer than that. So you can check that out. Uh, we've got another show that's coming out uh, August 3rd. I don't know when this is coming out, but uh, you, you can check it out uh, on twitter.com slash range touch. It's called Just King Things and it's where we're talking about uh, every single published work of Stephen King uh, in publication oh. order, uh, it's going to take us like nine and a half <laughs> years uh, if you stopped writing tomorrow. So um, it's it's monthly, and uh, our first uh, episode on Carrie comes out um, on August third. So you can check that out. Uh, other stuff we do, we do Mages and Murder Dads, which is kind of like a, a half a let's play, half a podcast uh, about the Baldur's Gate games and other games around that. And now Michael and I are doing a show called Too Much Future where every two weeks we release an episode where we play a little bit of the Fallout games and then talk about them. We've just finished up Fallout 1 and 2, so if you're interested in learning about you know, people walking through step-by-step step what's going on and kind of talking about it and doing criticism, kind of verbal criticism of the thing, uh, you can check out Too Much Future. That's on youtube.com slash rangetouch. And if you like Fallout 3, we're about to start that in a couple weeks. So um, a lot of cool stuff, uh, a lot of cool criticism-y stuff. I just, I write less than I used to, but now I make a lot more uh, video and voice content. So check all that stuff out. Yeah, it's a regular. Yeah, I mean, you seem pretty busy. <laughs> I don't think I don't I think you need like... to write write too much beyond that. I feel busy. Yeah. <laughs> regular <laughs> Rupert Murdoch over there. Oh no! <laughs> literally anyone else. You could have just you could have no, literally no, chosen anyone. You should put that on uh, range touch the <laughs> Rupert Murdoch <laughs> of uh, independent games. Right. I saw that you were doing that Stephen King thing, and you're, good lord. Oh, it's already wild. Carrie is the. If y'all haven't read Carrie, oh, I read you it. Should, you, you should you should read Carrie. It's, there's a lot going on. What uh, is? But but yeah, we're having a good time with it so far. I I think that there's going to be a lot to get out of it, and all of these are kind of critical looks, right? We're not just summarizing mm-hmm. the plot or anything. We're we're talking about it. So if you liked this two hours where we dug into the specifics of The Last of Us Part Two, imagine doing this, but with literally anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Yusuf. stop using our podcast to pitch your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be on that grind. Sorry. Sorry to report. You don't last uh, this long in the fine. freelance game without doing a little bit of promo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true, true. Yusuf, where can people find you? Um, I am on Twitter as YumiU. That's Y O U M E Y O U. And uh yeah. I also I write for bullet points. I edit for this website, and I also write for Unwinnable, another great website. Mm-hmm. And that's all I got. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Yeah. That's good. That's good stuff. And we have we have a whole bunch of stuff that I don't know. Do we even want to? Yeah, we, can we talk should. about it. Sure. Yeah. We should, right. Do you want to talk about it, or should I talk? About 
Um, we are playing through Final Fantasy thirteen. Um, yeah. Very, very, very slowly. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yes, yes. it is gonna be great. I mean, we, we released a first episode already, and we will be continuing to release episodes on the Patreon, um, which is will be linked in the show notes. And so yeah, we're we're kind of working our way through that, and um, yeah, we're also planning on a playthrough of the Halo games. <gasps> um, <laughs> you know that read? <laughs> <laughs> no, no one told me. Yeah, no. As soon as uh, I can clear nine, yeah, you need to clear you need to clear your hard drive, and then we'll be off to the races. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, planning on doing kind of a co-op playthrough of as many of them as we can get through. And then doing some podcasts, yeah. So we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're we got some we got some some things cooking. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We got lots of stuff in the oven, and there's all sorts of. If you go on uh, the Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/bullet-points, there's a bunch of old old podcasts. Old, <laughs> it really starts old. <laughs> well, They're not that yeah, old. Yeah, you're I don't really know. selling it. There's a bunch of yeah. old junk on that old website. <laughs> there's some old shit. Listen, I'm. I work in, in media. Everything older than a week ago is ancient. Um, <laughs> we've got ancient podcast series, Patreon podcast series. Like there's uh, Blood of Friendship, which was uh, Astrid and I, uh, Astrid formerly uh, editor of Bullet Points, and we played through all the Kingdom Hearts games and discussed them at length, uh, sometimes with help from Julie Muncie, uh, who you may know from writing some good Last of Us Part Two criticism among other things uh there's the industry minute with former editor ed smith that uh we're still doing just not as often uh episodes of that and then our book uh that ed and i wrote okay hero uh essays about the metal gear solid games you can get for the ten dollar tier which is what what a deal what a steal i think like a lot of people bought the that itch uh black lives matter bundle it was in there so if you bought that and um i hope you did because that that was cool and that raised a ton of money so statistically you probably did um if you aren't aware you can check that out through there as well and if you have it for free then why not um i don't know yusuf yeah uh read bullet points monthly read our last of us two month um and we have uh, a month on Ghost of Tsushima coming up very soon when you're listening to this. And there's, I don't know, there's so, there's a lot of stuff there. It's all free on the website. It's, frankly, it's embarrassing how much free writing there is there. It's disgusting. All of you should <laughs> be ashamed of yourselves for reading for free. You but I mean, us. like... Maybe don't look at it right now because we're at our ninety percent of our bandwidth cap. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> wait, it res- uh, resets in August, so you're good. Yeah, then wait till the Ghost of Tsushima month and then explore all we had to offer. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that's it. And then uh, I suppose the last thing is we're part of the Superculture Network, which uh, right now is consists of we're going to take on Range Touch, we're going to defeat them head to head. Um, but right now it just consists of uh, us here at Bullet Points and uh, the folks at Bad End um, who do a really good podcast that you should check out and we have one collaborative project that we wrapped up uh, I think about a month or two ago called Savoir Fair where Josh Calixto and Kyle Kirchdell and I uh, discussed Disco Elysium at great length Um, and that's it that's a lot of promo stuff 
Am I forgetting anything? Does anyone have anything they want to say? Uh, thank you for having us on. Yeah, cheers, on the site and on here. Does your cat want to say anything? No, no. Right now she's calm. She probably gave up. She like <laughs> decided to clock out when we passed an hour. Came back for a moment to get a last word in, and then she's back <laughs> off again. Okay. I just wanted to yeah to make sure that she wasn't getting cut off. She didn't have a podcast to promote. No worries. She, she could just flame us on Twitter. Yeah, yeah she get her word. Yeah, in her name is Jennifer. She absolutely will. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, thank thank all of you so much for making the time to come on to this, and uh, thank you out there for listening. Um, bulletpointsmonthly.com. Go look at it. Bye.